The book of Esther, a very unique book of the Bible. It's the only book of the Bible that we do not have the name of God mentioned even one time. There are no prayers prayed in the book of Esther. Hahasuerus, his name, the leader of uh, Persia at the time, his name is mentioned uh, many times. Some people say as many, he's referred to 150 times in the book, but at least 27 times, 28 times, his name is mentioned. So it's a unique book that doesn't have God's name. It's, uh, it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote the book. We're not sure who the author is, but we see God all the way through it. And basically the theme of the book of Esther is God working behind the scenes. There is an unseen part of life that you don't see. We referenced it a while ago that there was no book of Job when Job was going through Job. <laughs> and there, but there is a God that was there, and someone in the shadows, you'll find the Lord. And he was working. It's one of two books of the Bible named after a lady. Of course, the book of Ruth and now this book of Esther. They're put together kind of with uh, Nehemiah and Ezra, but uh, probably about 100 years after they had permission to go back to Jerusalem, the Jews had been kept captive for 70 years by Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and also Darius and, and Cyrus, and they let them go. And now a new king has uh, risen, and uh, he's quite a, quite a sot. He's a, he's a drunk, looks like to me, always about alcohol and a little bit flimsy in his leadership. But he's there in Shushan, the winter palace of Persia. And that's where the, uh, the things takes place. The Jews had had permission to go back. And uh, it's not really a good testimony for Mordecai or for Esther, quite frankly, from a moral standpoint, because there is drinking, there is immorality, uh, there is uh, lots of challenges going on, intermarrying, there's abuses of the law that the Jews had, and they're partaking in it. Uh, there, there's nothing, there's no, uh, can't really tip your hat to them for their morality, but you can see that God loves his people. And he's very patient with people, even when they're not all they ought to be. How many of you and I would say, we're not all we ought to be sometime? Aren't you glad that God's patient with us? And we see that in the book of Esther especially. Uh, whenever Darius was in charge, there were 120 provinces. Now there are 127. And basically the king has a big feast, and he has it for 187 days. 180 days just of showing off all of his glory to his princes and to his leaders worldwide who have come into town for that six-month hiatus. Then seven days of a drunken feast where he has a party for the guys and Vashti has a party, his queen, for the ladies. And after the seventh day of being inebriated and drunk and uh, he gets the idea to bring his, his queen over and in his drunken stupor, no doubt, and that is one of the, 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 one of the things we can take away from the book of Esther is alcohol is damaging. It is, it is not, I, in my opinion, it should not even be considered uh, an option for a child of God. And if every once in a while you find someone who wants to prove that alcohol is not a sin in the Bible and all that stuff, uh, and if you want to find those little loopholes, knock yourself out. As for me, I think God covers it from beginning to end, that it's nothing, nothing good happens because of alcohol consumed. And, and uh, just uh, I think it's a good idea to stay away from it completely. But this is a pagan culture, and God has given us, and it's, it's, it's what happens here is uh, very wicked. 
But he asked the queen to come. The queen refuses, and then the guys put pressure on him. Hey, we can't have this happen because my wife heard about this, and it would be bad, and we got to make a decree. And he sends out a decree saying that all the men of, of his kingdom must be in charge of their own home and kind of foolish and silly, but that's what you do when you mix alcohol and decisions, you know. I don't know who the goofball was that said, think when you drink. That's one thing you don't do when you drink alcohol. You don't think, you know, and it takes away your thinking. But that was what happened. And, of course, now she has been deposed as the queen. And uh, now uh, time goes by and the king is angry. That's another major uh, uh, thing of sin and vice that surfaces in the book of Esther. And that is alcohol and anger or wrath. And very few things happen good when you and I have our, our temper out of control. Uh, the Bible tells us very quickly in the book of James, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? Because the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. When you and I have our anger upset, we don't say the right thing, we don't do the right thing, we don't type the right words, we don't send the right text, we don't leave the right voicemail, we, get, we, 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 we communicate in a wrong way, and it is problems from beginning to end. And we see here over and over again, Haman, is full of indignation. It causes him to uh, try to get a plot to kill Mordecai and the Jewish people. The king is angry. Every time someone gets angry, something bad happens that's a more negative nature, and it happens the same in the life and times of John Wilkerson and in your life as well. Well, his friends say, look, it's time now for you to get a queen. Here's the idea. Let's go ahead and have a, uh, a bachelor show on television. We just get all these girls to come in, and you're the, you're the most eligible bachelor on the, on the, there, and we're going to find out who your girl's going to be. And so you're just going to have all these virgins come from all over your province, and you'll give them time to get ready and give them each attendance and give them, give them all the things they need to make themselves beautiful, and then you can decide who is one. And each of them will have a night with you, and you can decide if you like them. You don't let them go back. Don't let anybody go back to their house. Let them go to another place. At the end, you decide who you want. Of course, he wanted purity. He wanted virgins, but he himself was a pervert. <laughs> and that's just exactly, and girls, young ladies, and ladies, you have to remember that, and everybody needs to remember that. Uh, it's, it's amazing people want a purity when it comes time for them, but they don't always want to be pure. And that's exactly how this king was, and, and uh, trying to find his, his, uh, his queen by way of, of trying out how many people he wanted to try out, figure out which one he liked the best. And that's a worldly way to find, uh, to find a, a, a spouse, I think, as well. Nonetheless, uh, that, that process comes around and everything comes together. And then in the middle of that, we get introduced to Mordecai. Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. Kish was the dad of Saul. And that will maybe be a little bit significant. He's a Benjamite. He is uh, stuck in, he's still in Persia, probably should have been back home, and yet he probably enjoyed the comfort and the comfortability of being in Persia. That's what he knew. He was raised there, and he didn't go back to Israel. But he does, he is from the same lineage, his, his uh, probably a great nephew of King Saul, if you look at, if you look at the lineage, most likely. So he's a, he is there, and he has a cousin that he's kind of like a father figure to her. Uh, some people say that his dad, her dad passed away before she was born, and her mom died at childbirth. Well, however it happened, Mordecai became the, uh, the, the one who would, would uh, proctor her through life and take care of her, and she obeyed him. She did what he wanted him to do, and she's Jewish. He was Jewish. 
But he entered her into this selection process, and she came in. She was unique in the fact that she did not require anything above what was provided for her. And if she did get seven attendants that came and take care of her, she got all of her hair products and her makeup and all the things that she would need for, for her beauty, if you will. But whatever they gave her, she was content with that. And I imagine if you get all the girls together in a beauty pageant, I've never been to one and don't plan to ever go to one, but I'm sure some of those girls get a little catty. They get a little bit thinking they deserve this or they want this or they want to make sure... But uh, these other girls, they, they were probably saying, hey, can I have this? And I don't like this. I want this changed out. Or I want this different color, uh, you know, fingernail polish or whatever. But she just took whatever that was going to. And by the way, that was very attractive. Not only to the, the captain or the chamberlain who was in charge of the ladies, he, uh, he quickly saw a different spirit in Esther. And that teaches us that we ought to have a good spirit. We ought to have a contentment about us. Contentment is very attractive, not only to the world, but especially attractive to God. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. And so he entered her into that, and she found favor with the people that were in charge of the process. And then whenever she came before the king, he also, the Bible says that he loved her but he appreciated, they appreciated the fact that she did not require more than was given to her. And boy, there's a, something inside of us, the Bible calls it the sin of covetousness. It's that itch for more. We're just not satisfied. We, we want what we want. And that, I've joked around with you before, but I kind of like my car until I see someone else's new car. and like, oh, I got a piece of junk here, you know. And, you know, I, I like what I have until I go see somebody else's stuff. And all of a sudden, that enemy of contentment is comparison. But she managed to say, you know what, I'm not going to ask for than is given to me. I'll make sure I'm satisfied with that. And then a good question to ask yourself is, are you a contented individual? Are you content? And you say, well, yeah, I pretty am. Would your spouse say that about you? Would your kids say, oh, my mom is so content. My dad, is, he's, just, he's very happy with what God's given him. This is not looking over the fence of life and wishing that he was over there and wishing he had the grasses greener on the other side. They're very easy to please. Would to God that all of us would be that, especially as God's people. How many of God's been good to you and you would not be afraid to testify to that? And he's been very good to us. And oh, how sometimes we are discontent. Well, that's where we left off last time. We're going to be looking, if you would please, at chapter number 2. And just a quick thought, and of course, verse 17 says, And the king loved Esther and above all the women and obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then the king made a great feast and to his princes and basically gave them a holiday because of anointing of that. And, and then, uh, then it was very quickly available that uh, Mordecai, her uncle, got put from outside the gate to inside the gate. He became, he got an opportunity. We don't, the Bible doesn't tell us how, but he became an authority and at least a leader in the kingdom of Ahasuerus. And so that's kind of interesting. Then we see something that happens, and this is where I'll call your attention tonight for a few moments. If you would please look at verse number 22, 21. This is after she's made queen, and it's seven years so uh, seven years uh, of uh, he 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 excuse me seven years later he that he becomes the king and and she becomes the queen look if you would please at verse number twenty one and those days while Mordecai sat forgive me it's seven years since, since 
So Hazarus is taking the kingdom. It's four years from the time Vashti was fired until, uh, until Esther becomes queen. I'm sorry about that. Now verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Big Than and Teresh. Aren't you glad your mama didn't name you Big Than? And those which kept the door. And guess what happened? What is their problem? They were what? Broth. They're angry with the king. They're doorkeepers. They're chamberlains, which means they're eunuchs that were servicing the king and the kingdom there. And they sought to, they sought to lay hands on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it to Esther, the queen. And Esther certified the king, or made, let him be aware of it, thereof in Mordecai's name. I've been told by my uncle or my cousin or Mordecai that there are two guys out to hurt you. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, there they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So very unique. There's a coup attempt. Two guys, Teresh and Big Than, they are chamberlains there. They're doorkeepers somehow in the king, and they're angry. Something has happened that's made them angry at the king. And they commune with themselves and make a plan that they're going to take the king down. And it comes into the ears of uh, Mordecai, Mordecai. And Mordecai takes it to Esther and says, uh, Esther, there's two guys trying to kill the king. And she takes it to the king and says, uh, Mordecai, one of, your, one of your guys in your council has uh, been aware of this. You may want to take, uh, take note of it. And they did inquisition, found out that the coup was, uh, was planned. And these guys were guilty, and they hung both of those guys, and they wrote it down in the Chronicles of the King. But it's interesting here, not much happens. It doesn't look like that Mordecai got any recognition. He didn't get a promotion. Nothing happens until sometime later. I don't want to spoil the plot, but I think it's important for us to understand something today. And that is, a little bit later... Very significantly, and you can see God's hand in the situation, the king can't sleep one night. And uh, so he has some bedtime stories brought to his side, and they are chronicles of his accomplishments, what has happened in his kingdom. And they read this story to the king. They read it, and they said that uh, there were two guys, Big Than and Teresh, in your kingdom. They were set up, set up a plan, to, a plot to kill you. But then a guy named Mordecai stepped up and he found out. He took it to your queen. Your queen brought it to you. You, you uh, sought to investigate it, found out it was true, and you killed both those guys. And the king said, you know what? I forgot about that. What do we do for that guy? What do we do for Mordecai? What, what kind of thing did I do for him? Tell, read me what I did for him. He said, he didn't do anything for him. I didn't promote him. I didn't praise him. I didn't, I didn't do anything to be a help to him. And that particular situation would later in our story, Mordecai would be honored, but not then. You know, one of the things I think that Christians that we struggle with is delayed uh, reward. We do things and we just don't see results. I'm sure Mordecai may have thought, if I, if I let him know about this, and this is going to be good for me, and actually, he didn't even get a pat in the back. Didn't seem like he got any recognition. Just like, oh, you're right. Glad you took care of it. Thank you very much. We got these guys. But it wouldn't come up until later. 
And one of the things I think that many Christians we struggle with is we work on a bus route, we don't see too much progress, and we just like, you know, that's not going to happen. We try to witness to someone, try to give someone a gospel track, or try to get somebody to come, and it just doesn't happen. We just think, oh, well, I'm going to quit. That God gives us many provocations in the Scriptures. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. And let us not be weary in well-doing. In due season we'll reap if we don't quit. Over and over again, God puts up big billboards in our life saying, don't quit. Don't quit. Keep on going. Keep on serving. In a marriage, goodness, I wonder how many marriages would survive if someone would decide, I'm not going to quit. How many churches would continue to be thrive and, and go if someone would decide, you know what, I'm just going to stay another week. <laughs> I'm going to keep on going. I'm not going to quit. I didn't put myself here, and, and I'm going to let God decide how long I stay, and I'm going to do that. I remember years ago, and I've told you the story, but I, uh, I remember meeting a lady, and I, knew, I met the man, and had the man, uh, led a man to Christ named Will. He was originally from uh, Italy, and he had gone to Australia, and ended up in Southern California, and I got a chance to talk to him, and the Lord saved him. He had been witnessed to many times, and the Lord just gave me grace to give him the gospel, and he accepted the Lord. He came to church. He was so excited about getting baptized, and he was an older man and very Italian. So for him to get baptized when he was very Catholic was just absolutely amazing. He wanted to be baptized so badly. We had two boys, and one of his boys was single, and the other son was married. And he was married to one of the meanest ladies I've met heretofore. She was, uh, she was very hard-headed, very miserable. I remember seeing her at Will's funeral later on. And she stood over there while everybody, we were having the graveside service, she stood under a tree and smoked a cigarette, leaned up against a cigarette and smoked a, smoked a cigarette while she watched the uh, graveside. I tried to talk to her. She shrugged me off so quick. What I found out is that she was extremely disrespectful to her husband, bitter beyond measure. She couldn't stand her, his mom and dad. She turned the kids against him. She would cry. She would tell your dad's this, your dad's this, your dad's this, and just very cruel. And I remember the day that, uh, that Gary called me and said, hey, my wife's in the hospital. Could you go see her? She's asking for you. I went over to see her, and I, she said, Pastor, I got cancer all over my body, and I know why I have it, because I'm just eat up with bitterness. I've been a horrible example of a wife. I've been a horrible example of a, of a, of a, a mom. I've turned the kids against dad. Now, they haven't listened to me because they just see, they see my testimony and see his, and they just love him. They love me, but I've just been terrible. I have not gone over to, I've not done any family functions with Gary's family for years. I've been miserable, and God's dealing with me. And... Uh, she, we prayed her at her bedside. I think she was already saved, but she came back to the Lord at that bedside. And she said, Pastor, when I get out of here, I'm going to go to church. I want to be faithful to the Lord. And, and she did get out of the hospital, but she went from, from there to a hospice unit. She never got to go to church. But she became a very sweet, repentant lady. And we did her funeral and with her, her boy and her two daughters. And I watched her husband, Gary, stand there and receive friends. What I found out is that many of his friends offered to pay for him to get a divorce. They said, Gary, I don't know, why, you, why are you staying with this woman? She hates you. She's miserable. She cusses you. She, she hates your parents. She turns the kids against you. And uh, 
And I found all the stuff out. And I remember one day talking to him because he met a precious girl in our church a few years later, and I had the chance to do her wedding, their wedding for them. But in doing premarital counseling, I was talking to him one day. His, his fiance didn't come to the appointment on time, and so he, we were waiting and talking. And I said, Gary, what was it to help you stay with your, with your first wife through all that difficulty? I've just heard part of it, but it, it hurts. It sounds like it was terrible. He said, every time I wanted to quit, and every time someone offered me to stop, he said, I just decided I would reach down and love a little bit more. I would just love a little bit more. He said, the kids, they're so thankful that I loved a little bit more. They're so thankful. They, they oftentimes thank me, Daddy. Thank you for not leaving Mom. Thank you for letting us have those last few weeks with Mom where she was so sweet and so wonderful, and she loved you, and you loved her. And we had that one. And he said, boy, I am so glad when we had those times that I learned to love a little bit more. I think sometimes we just don't get what we want when we get it, and we want to quit. And I'm sure that Mordecai, I thought, man, I, I thought for sure I'd get some kind of recognition. Let's look at another passage of Scripture I think will be encouraging to you. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 10, can we? Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 10. If you have not underlined this in your Bible, you want to underline this verse and highlight it in your Bible. Verse number 9, but beloved, but beloved uh, chapter 6 of Hebrews, verse number 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now I want you to read verse 10 with me, everybody out loud. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 10. Are you ready? For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God is not unrighteous to forget anything you do for him. Hey, listen, mom, dad, be patient and love a little bit more. Husband, wife, be patient, love a little more. So I'm not seeing any results. You know, God is not always excited as about the results, it's about the obedience. Just keep doing what God wants you to do. I hear of missionaries who for many years went to a mission field and went six, seven years and didn't have any converts. They did everything they could do. They prayed, they sacrificed, no converts. But it wasn't until that eighth, ninth year that God began to give a windfall of blessing. I wonder how many things we forfeited because we just quit way too early. Because we didn't see the immediate reward that we want to see. I think we see that in this story, especially with... Um, with Esther and Mordecai. Here he does, he disposes and deals with a plot to kill the king, and nothing becomes of it until several years later. Uh, it, will, it, will be, it will be five, six, seven years later after that that he'll finally one night find out that it was a good thing for him to have done what he'd done, and God knew when to reward him. You know, you think about the Lord, the last thing God says in the Bible. Let's turn there. I want you to see it. Would you go to Revelation chapter 22? And while we're going there, real quickly, let's uh, look. I want you to quote this verse with me. Without faith, it is impossible to do what? Because him that cometh to God must believe two things about God. Number one, that he is. Okay, that's salvation, I believe. That's to get saved, you've got to believe that Jesus is God. He's the Savior. Only his, his, uh, sa his sacrifice can pay for our sin. Have to believe he is who he said he is. He's God in the flesh. But not only do you believe that he is, but faith, does, after we get saved, do we still need faith? Yeah, but the just shall live by. Now we're not living in faith with God's, who God is for our salvation. That's taken care of. But we are living in faith 
that he is a what? Rewarder. Of them that would? That would keep on going, keep on seeking him, keep on obeying him, week after week, day after day, not getting weary in well-doing. I love this passage of Scripture. This is the last words of the Bible and the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible. And I want you to look at what Jesus says. Verse number 12. Would you look at it? 22, 12. Let's read it out loud together. And behold, I come quickly, and my to give to every man according to his work shall be. One thing you are being evaluated by the Heavenly Father knows everything. He knows the backstory, And he doesn't even close the Bible without saying, if you're a Christian, I'm coming quickly. And when I come, I got a reward for you. Because I know everything that's happened before, after. I know what you went through. Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Judge nothing. Don't make a total evaluation. There's very little, especially other people. You and I, we are really good at evaluating other people. And sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. We can't see our own problems. We're blinded by that. But he says, I, I want to tell you, make no judgment before the time comes. And that's when the Lord shall come. And when the Lord comes back, he pulls back the curtain of two things, the evil works of darkness. One thing you can't see that's going on in this world is demonic activity. Can't see it, but it's going on. Uh, you can't, you can't, I don't know how a Christian could deny that, just looking around. You know, go soul winning a few times and try to witness to someone when it comes to the gospel presentation and see what happens. Well, I was witnessing that precious lady today. But all of a sudden, we're getting ready down to the end. I'm going to explain to her how she could be saved. Man, someone slammed a door just right outside. What, about, about broke her neck looking over there, and I got scared too. I thinking, what's that? But I thought to myself, Lord, please, please stifle whatever the problem is over here. Please don't let that be a problem. I was waiting for someone to walk in. Dogs bark, doorbells ring, phones ring, all kinds of things to distract. Why? Because you can't really evaluate what's going on in the satanic world. But one day... The God who knows everything, he says, don't you make a judgment. Don't make a judgment before the time comes. He'll pull back the, the curtain of the evil works. Number two, he'll reveal the counsels in the heart. One thing you can't know about me and I can't know about you is what's really going on behind our eyeballs, what's really going on inside, our motives. Now, motives manifest themselves from time to time, but God really knows the motive. I've sometimes been so off on making judgment calls about why someone is doing this. Have you ever talked to someone and you're, they're trying to tell you something and you're, and you're trying to outguess them what's going on you're trying to finish their statements and they go, no, no, that wasn't what I was thinking. I've done that so many times. Well, you know, sometimes God always knows what the counsel is. And then shall every man have praise of God. Do you find yourself in a frustrating point? Do you feel like you're not experiencing the blessings? Keep on doing what God wants you to do. You're going to find that God is very, very clear that he'll not be weary. Don't be weary in well-doing. You're trying to be single and pure, and you're like, man, when am I going to ever get married? This is stupid. What's not, other people are doing, doing immoral, and they seem like they're doing okay. No, 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 keep being pure. Keep being pure. You're struggling with other things and, and not, seeing, not seeing the results you want to see. Just keep being what God wants you to be. You'll find that God is there and he is faithful. And you can trust him. He is not unrighteous to forget what you do and how you're living and what you're doing. Trust him. 